I know that it's true about all of us that we would prefer hope over hopelessness. We, we would rather look forward to something that's good that's going to happen in our lives than to feel like we're looking forward to something negative. We want a preferred outcome in the future. That's hope. We believe in a preferred... That's what we want. We prefer that. You think about things in your life and you want something to work out in the future that's good. In, in, in terms of some relationship you have, you want that relationship to go well in the future. A, a business situation or a work scenario, you want that to work out good in the future. Some, some financial situation, your own home, you want that to work out good in the future. You, you prefer hope having something in the future that works out for your benefit. But we live in a world where it just feels like hopelessness is kind of the growing climate. I mean, people talk about the economy in such a way that around the corner is not going to be good. And it just seems like that cloud of hopelessness in regard to the economy just exists out there. And then you think about relationships. If, if 50% of marriages are failing in divorce, then what's the point of even getting married? I mean, you hear that. There, there's this, this, this climate of hopelessness that exists. And at some level, we experience this, this cloud or storm of hopelessness that kind of rolls in over our life and begins to just squelch out any hope that we may feel. I don't know if you've been there and you've felt like that along the way, but, but I think at some level, all of us can relate to the challenge of hopelessness. And the reason I think all of us can relate to that is because God has said in His Word that apart from Him, none of us have hope. Apart from Him, none of us have hope. There's a story in Luke chapter 1 that begins with this climate of hopelessness. And for that reason, it's a story, in one degree or another, to which all of us can relate. So let's look at Luke chapter 1. And the story begins in verse 5, introducing us to two individuals who are living in the time of King Herod. If you remember your Christmas stories, the time of King Herod is the time when Jesus was born. And so we're in that time frame, and you've got these two individuals, Zacharias and Elizabeth, who are living in the days of Herod. And there's something said about their lives that, the, that Luke wants us to know about them. So let's read verse 6. Verse 6 says, they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. Zacharias and Elizabeth were a part of God's chosen people, living in the promised land, and they were fully obeying all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. Now, if you want a description written of you in the Bible, that's the one you want. Everything they were doing was exactly what God required of them. And you think about that description, an individual, you know, a couple... Married in the promised land, God's people doing everything they're supposed to do before God. You would think, man, that is a really good situation. They have got to be experiencing a lot of hope in that situation. But that's not at all what's going on. Look at the contrast in verse 7. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. They were doing everything right. They were part of God's people living in the promised land. And yet this couple was unable to have a child. And that's, that's meant to be in great contrast to how they were living and who they were and where they were. And here they are, no child. And even if Elizabeth could have a child, they're both getting so old that that's becoming an impossibility. 
they have a scenario that is supposed to be understood by us, the reader, as hopeless. Now, something's wrong here. Something is really wrong when you have someone in God's chosen people living in the promised land who is doing everything right before God and is unable to have a kid. Something is wrong. Even more so when you understand that in Exodus chapter 23, verse 26, God said to his people, when you go into the promised land, I'm going to make you a unique and particular people such that no person among you will miscarry a child and none among you will be barren. And in another place, God says to his people, I'm going to make you so unique among all the peoples of the earth that not only will none of you have barrenness, but not even a single one of your livestock will be barren. So here you have Zacharias and Elizabeth, God's people, living in the promised land, doing everything God wants them to do, and they're barren. There's something drastically wrong. And it's much bigger than just Zacharias and Elizabeth. You see, God also said to his people, if you do not obey me, if you do not follow me when you go into the promised land, all the blessings and all the promises that I've made to you as a nation, you will not experience. So what was happening here is Elizabeth was suffering because of the rebellion of the nation of Israel. This particular promise to Israel, no barrenness, is not being experienced in Elizabeth's life because of the rebellion of the nation. See, the hopelessness that, that Zacharias and Elizabeth are experiencing is just a small glimpse into the bigger picture of the hopelessness that's happening in Israel because of a rebellion against God. Hopeless. Zacharias and Elizabeth's lives seems hopeless in terms of having a child. She's barren. Israel seems hopeless. God hasn't spoken in Israel for 400 years. Not a word. Because of the rebellion of Israel. Spiritually barren. If you were Zacharias and Elizabeth, you would probably say it really did feel hopeless in terms of having a child. If you were in Israel, you would probably say after 400 years, it feels pretty hopeless. God hadn't said a word to us. And yet, things are not always as they appear. When things appear hopeless, it does not mean that God is not working. God is always working to extend hope to a hopeless Zacharias' story picks up with him going to the temple in Jerusalem because he's a priest. and He's got to carry out his priestly service. And his particular role on this particular day was to go into the holy place at the tabernacle, at the temple, and to give incense offering on the altar of incense. Now, all the priests had different roles to play and duties and services to carry out, and this happened to be his time to go in and do that duty. He'd probably done it before and all the guys around him had done it and other things in their routine, in their ordinary service before the Lord. This was an ordinary experience, nothing out of the ordinary, just a normal routine that he would go through. And when he walked in to the holy place to make the offering of incense at the altar of incense, he's walking in understanding, I can't have a child. My wife is barren and we're way too old. It is hopeless. 
And he walks in and he gets to the edge, to right at the door of the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God is. He's that close to God, and his overwhelming reality is, we can't have a child. And he does not know, when he walks into that place, that God is working. But God's always working in the midst of hopelessness, to extend a hand of hope. He's always been doing that. You think back to the Israelites when they're in bondage in Egypt. 400 years there, they're stuck in slavery. At the end of that time, they certainly are hopeless. They've been crying out for deliverance from the Lord for years and nothing comes. And yet in the midst of their hopelessness, God shatters that hopelessness by bringing about an old guy with a speech impediment who's wanted for murder in Egypt. And he delivers them. He shatters their hopelessness with unbelievable hope. That's what God does. You, you remember the story about Haman in the Old Testament found in the record of the book uh, Esther? Haman hated the Jews because they had this little squabble with a Jew named Mordecai. And so Haman, because he's second command to the king of Persia, gets the king of Persia to sign into law an edict to destroy all the Jews. If you're a Jew living under the king of Persia, when that edict comes out, you know that your life has now become hopeless because nothing can change that law. You look at the palace and you see an outlandish king living in an outlandish way with this, with this queen who is outlandish and you think there's no hope for us. And yet you would not realize in your hopelessness that God is still working. And he has placed a queen in the palace who is a Jew in hiding. And that she is going to stand courageously, trusting God. And God is going to bring about hope that shatters the hopelessness of the Jews. In fact, another law is issued because Esther makes this effort before the king. And the Jews are not only protected from destruction, but raised to a place of authority. Amazing story of God shattering the hopelessness of His people. Because that's what God does. Remember the story about Joshua headed into Jericho with Israel? He sends that little group of spies in. Those spies go in the city and the officials are hunting them down. And they find a place to hide. Guess where they hide? They hide in a lady's house. Her name was Rahab. She's a prostitute in the city. So of all places, they end up at a prostitute's house. And that prostitute understands the power of God and that her city is fixing to be wiped out by God. And she is hopeless. And in her hopelessness, she cries out for mercy from God. She says to the spies, I'll hide you, but you've got to promise to save me and my house. And they do that. And her hopelessness is shattered by the hope of God. And she is delivered. She's saved. But it's much bigger than just her life. See, when God is reaching out throughout history to bring a hand of hope in the midst of hopelessness, it's always much bigger than the moment. See, Rahab was saved. And she ended up meeting a guy among the Israelites, named Salmon. She married that guy, and they had a kid named Boaz. And Boaz had a kid named Obed. And Obed had a kid named Jesse. And Jesse had a boy named David, who's the savior of the world. See, it was much bigger than just Rahab. God was extending a hand of hope to the world because it's his heart to shatter our hopelessness. 
And that's what he was going to do with Zacharias. Zacharias walks in and gets to the table, gets into the holy place, and guess what he sees standing by the, the table, the altar of incense? He sees the angel Gabriel. Now you just put yourself in that scenario. You're going through a normal routine. You ever do anything in your life that's just so routine, so autopilot that you don't even realize you're doing it? You ever get in your car and head to work, and you get to work, or you're at work and you're headed home, and you get home and you wonder, I don't have a clue how I got here. You ever done that? Or you ever left your house intent on going to the grocery store and ended up at work and wonder, why am I here? Have you ever just been on autopilot? You know, Zacharias is walking in because this is something he ordinarily does. This is routine. This is ordinary. He walks in and something extraordinary occurs. It shocks him out of his ordinary life. He sees an angel standing there and he freaks out. He is scared to death. And the angel says to Zacharias, don't be afraid. I don't know how much help that was. But he says, don't be afraid. He says, your prayers have been answered. God's heard you. And you're going to have a son. And the angel tells Zacharias he's going to have a son, but the angel makes sure Zacharias knows this is not just any son. Listen to this. Look at chapter 1 here. Look at the end of verse 13. You will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no more wine or liquor. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. He will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zacharias, this boy is not just an answer to your prayers. This boy is an answer to the prayers of the nation. This is not just an answer to the prayers of the nation. This is an answer to the hopelessness of the world. This boy is going to point out the Savior who will shatter our hopelessness. Amazing. Unprecedented promise. that shatters hopelessness. But Zacharias, his response wasn't all that good. How, how is this going to happen? Because here's the deal. I'm really old, and you ought to see my wife. <laughs> that's what it said. I don't think that's very wise, and I suspect that guy back to Elizabeth, and he was in big trouble. But that's what he does. <clears throat> he responds to the angel, and the angel Gabriel says, Do you know who I am? I'm Gabriel. I serve in the presence of God, and he sent me with this good news. Because you didn't believe it, you're not going to be able to speak to the day this boy is born. Was that punishment? I don't think so. I definitely think it was a consequence of his unbelief. But it was a gracious consequence. You see, God was extending a hand of hope to the world. And he didn't want Zacharias to miss it. And so God does something in his life. By taking away his ability to speak, there's one more reason to believe. He just gave Zacharias a, a gentle shove so he would not miss the hope that shatters his hopelessness. And Zacharias believed him. When he came out of that holy place and he made all his signs to the people around and they were in wonder about what's happening, I suspect he trucked it on home pretty fast with a lot of anticipation. He believed. 
he believed. You know, no matter how you are in terms of your life and your circumstances, in the storm clouds of hopelessness that maybe are, are building on the horizon, no matter where you are, what you face, what's happening in your life, what's happened in your past, God has performed the most extraordinary work in all history in order to shatter your hopelessness. See, God sent His Son, who lived a perfect life for you and me, died in our place to pay the penalty of our sin, so that if we would believe in Him, we might be forgiven of all our sins. And instead of receiving what was due us for our sin, we would receive the benefits that only belong to Jesus because of His righteousness. See, God has performed something in history to shatter our hopelessness. Hope has appeared. His name is Jesus and He is going to return. And every single one of us are in the same place as Zacharias. We have a decision to make. See, the dividing line between the hopelessness of my life and experiencing eternal and true hope is trust. Will I believe what God has said? Will I believe what He has said about Jesus? Will I believe that He has promised to forgive me of my sins? Will I believe that He's going to return again for all those who are waiting on Him with salvation in hand? Will I believe? That is the dividing line, the factor that determines whether or not you live with hope or you live in hopelessness. You have a decision to make. It's a great time to make decisions. It's Christmas time. Every one of us are making decisions over Christmas. You know that? I just got an email from my mother-in-law saying it's time for the Christmas list. I'm making decisions. And I'm picking out things that I want for Christmas. And guess what? I'm probably going to get some of those things. And so I'm making that list with anticipation. I'm making choices because someone has promised to do something for me. And I'm wondering, are you seeing the greatest gift of all? And the invitation to make a choice? To receive that gift. If you're here this morning, you've never made a decision to trust in Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. I I implore you to trust in Christ for the salvation of your soul. For the forgiveness of your sins. To move from hopelessness to the experience of eternal hope. Anticipating the return of your Savior to take you into eternal life. I hope you'll do that. If you're here this morning and you've made the decision to trust Christ and to follow Him, then I want to encourage you to never be like Zacharias. Never be like him. Think about this. He is a priest who's going about his priestly service right next to the Holy of Holies and an angel of the Lord appears to him and he acts like it's not really all that big a deal. Not big enough to overcome his problems. He is unmoved by the word of God through the angel Gabriel. Don't be like him. Do you know you have something more significant in your hands right now than a five-minute visit with an angel? You have the words of Christ preserved for you that you might hear the words of God every single day in your life. Don't ever come to the place 
where you're going about your priestly service. You see, you have been redeemed by the blood of Christ so that now the Holy Spirit dwells in you and you are, the pres- you are where the presence of God dwells. And in God's presence dwelling with you through the Spirit of God, you get to do everything you do in your life to the glory and worship of God. You serve every day as a priest before God in the presence of God because of the Spirit's presence in you. So don't ever get to the place where you get into the presence of God or going about your daily life of worship and you see His words and you hear those words and you just treat them like they're ordinary. Like they're not important, like they're not significant enough for you. This is the word of God spoken to you so that you could follow and know Jesus Christ. Come to his word and respond to it appropriately. Don't be like Zacharias. There's nothing like what God has preserved for us in the Bible. And please, don't be like Zacharias in responding to the message of a son like he did. I mean, Zacharias was told that his son was going to be pretty unbelievable, change the world kind of guy. And Zacharias starts telling the angel how his own ineptitude would keep that son from occurring and changing the world. Don't be like that. See, what God has said in his word to you is that his son can forgive you of your sins. His son can change your heart and life so that you can serve Him. His Son can enable you to make a difference in the world by extending His hand of hope that will shatter the hopelessness of everyone around you. Jesus Christ can change you and change the world through you by you taking the gospel. That's what He said. Please do not respond to what God has said with things like, you don't know my past. There's someone better. There's someone better equipped for that. I'm just not able. I'm not as good as so-and-so. No, don't respond to what God has said like that. Just hear what He said and believe and allow the hope of Christ to shatter all your hopelessness. Don't, don't you want the banner across your life to be the banner that was across Elizabeth's life? Look at verse 25. She says, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when He looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. Don't you want to be a person that says through your everyday life, through your hope in Jesus Christ, that God has taken away my disgrace and I am free. Jesus Christ has come. And that means hope can shatter your hopelessness. And Jesus Christ will come again. And I'm asking you to trust Him. Because no one, no one who has ever trusted in Jesus Christ has ever been disappointed. Hope has appeared. We need to trust Him.